Well, it's great to see all of you again this morning. It's such a delight to start a new semester. It's a privilege to begin a new book of the Bible. Um, we're still relatively new into the book of Judges, and it's been a delight to me to, to study this wonderful book, and Lord willing, it's going to be a blessing to you as well. Um, I get together with a, a group of, of guys on a regular basis and for fellowship and community and and fun, and, and one of the ways that guys bond, this is hard sometimes for uh, women to understand, is that we, we grow closer by arguing with each other, okay? Um, we love to debate and discuss and challenge and things like that, so this little group that I'm in, we do that with regularity and with frequency, and it's, there's no set agenda, and you don't know where you're going to end by the time that you're finished meeting. And you don't even remember how you got into the debate, okay, that you ended up getting into. But somehow, inevitably, every single time, we transition into a fun debate. And so, basically, anytime you make a thesis or you make a statement with confidence, that statement gets challenged, okay? And so what we will often do is we will go on our phones to look up papers or studies that we feel like would buttress our point, okay? And no one has time to read like a full paper or a full study, so we will look for the abstract. Do people, do you know what an abstract is in a study? It's that paragraph at the beginning of a paper or a study that gives a comprehensive short summary of the paper. And so it takes like 10 seconds to figure out whether or not this is a paper you want to use in your defense or whether or not you want to bury this paper and not bring it into your discussion, which happens 50-50, okay? In the book of Judges, there is an abstract. If the book of Judges was a paper, a scientific paper, a theological paper, on the period of redemptive history that we call the Judges. Our passage this morning, Judges 2, 6 through 23, it is the abstract. You could understand the book of Judges if all you had was Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. It is one of the best summaries of any book of the Bible in miniature and it's there right at the outset. So before diving into particular judges like we will do next week, what Judges 2, 6 through 23 does, it gives you a summary. It gives you a roadmap of where everything is going. With that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And before I read, remember repetition is the key to learning. Do you remember what a judge is? We said last week, don't confuse a biblical judge like with our concept of a judge of someone in a black gown and a gavel and things like that. A biblical judge was a combination of like a military general, a tribal chief, someone who would um, make decisions regarding legal matters. It's a combination of things that we refer to as a judge. This person is also going to be a deliverer. Okay, so that's what, when we talk about the book of Judges, that's what a judge was. 
And before I read, remember where this is in redemptive history. Okay, if we find our place in the history of redemption, God called Abraham, do you remember the approximate date we talked about last week? Around 1850 B.C., God called Abraham out of southern Iraq. Okay, fast forward in history. When was David crowned king? Approximately what date? Like 1,000 B.C. Between those two periods of time in the Old Testament, 1350 B.C., that's when the judges ruled and lived and operated. That's where we are today. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Now remember what a Baal was? A Baal was a god of the Canaanites. It was the god of fertility that the Canaanites worshipped. Verse 12. The Israelites, they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. That was another pagan expression of idol worship. Verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. The Lord sold his people into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them, against his own people, to defeat them just as he had sworn to them that he would do. They were in great distress. Then the Lord, he raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet, they would not listen to their judges, but they prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge. And he saved the people out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of the groaning of the people under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt. And so you're going to see that there's this cycle that gets worse and worse. Verse 19. 
But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. Verse 22, in fact, I will use them, these Canaanite peoples. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. This is an editorial note, verse 23. The Lord had allowed those Canaanite nations to remain. Why? He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Just to put this whole series in context, why are we in Judges now? How did we choose the book of Judges? And so what we're doing this fall semester is we are, we are studying the events that gave rise to the need for a redeemer, for a rescuer, for a true judge. And so, if you might recall, the book of Joshua is filled with hope and anticipation and longing as the people first under Moses, then under Joshua, finally occupy their inheritance and then Joshua dies and now there's another generation of Israelites that has to occupy and possess the land which obviously over time they are going to be unable to do and so what we're going to look at in the book of Judges and then in some minor prophets is to demonstrate the need for a redeemer to show just how bad things were going to get in Israel prior to the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So the book of Judges is going to show us our desperate need for the Lord Jesus Christ, our true rescuer and redeemer. Now, I want you to notice here, this is shocking. In this abstract that we get from the book of Judges, it is shocking just how quickly a spiritual train wreck the third generation of Israelites grew to be. It's, it's really incredible. Look at verses 8 and 9 of our text. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Look at verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now that is shocking. That is shocking that by the third generation, the people of Israel, for all practical matters, had basically abandoned their faith. They didn't know the Lord their God. They weren't aware of what he had done. 
in redemptive history. This is truly incredible. It reminds me of a historical example, just how quickly the generations can fall, of the Vanderbilt family. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the riches, well, I guess rags to riches to rags story of the Vanderbilt family of Cornelius Vanderbilt. What was his nickname? My wife went to Vanderbilt. Any of you Vandy grads? What was his nickname? The Commodore, okay? Hence Vanderbilt Commodores. And so he was um, a man of very humble beginnings. And he went on to build an immense fortune in the railroad and shipping industries in the mid-1800s. He, ex he achieved this wealth and fame through hard work and determination. And in today's dollars, when he died, his fortune was around $10 billion in today's currency. That's a remarkable amount of money. He was one of the titans of capitalism in the mid-1800s. Well, things did not go so well for his children and his grandchildren. His children did not share his same zest for hard work and determination, and they spent his money on lavish parties, incredible mansions, squandered it in wild living, that by the earliest, early 20th century, it was almost all gone. Andrew Cargan, Carnegie called this phenomenon, I don't know if you've ever heard this adage or proverb, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Have you ever heard that old adage, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations? Like in the early 20th century, how would professionals go to work? What kind of dress would they have back in the day, early 20s? Like suit, jacket maybe a fedora, you know? That's the way that you would dress. The menial workers who could not afford suits or jackets would just wear their shirt sleeves and they would roll them up and they would work hard. And oftentimes these menial workers, these shirt sleeves, they lived the American dream and they provided a much better life for their children. Their children who also did well but not so their grandchildren, who oftentimes would squander their inheritance, squander the way of living handed down by their grandfathers and their fathers, and so they would go from shirt sleeves back to shirt sleeves and three generations. Or in our context, what could it be called? Do you know what a mission church is? A mission church in the PCA is the same thing as a church plant. A mission church is a church that's so small they can't uh, financially provide for themselves and they have to borrow a government or they have to borrow elders from surrounding churches. That's how all churches start in our context. They're called mission churches. So that adage is also true in the context of the church. A church can go from a mission church or a church plant to a mission church or a church plant in three generations. The church plant starts with hope 
and optimism and hard work and volunteers and people are rolling up their sleeves and they're volunteering in the nursery and they are coming early to commune with people and enjoy people and the second generation they build the building they have a Christian education program they hire more pastors things are going well and then there's that next generation sometimes who begins to take for granted things that have happened and the church can experience decline and go back to a mission church or a church plant. Actually, that happens more often than you would believe. That's what's happening here. By the third generation, so you had Moses' generation who saw God's wonders in Egypt, okay? Um, they did grumble and complain, and they weren't allowed in the promised land, okay? But Caleb and Joshua's generation, they learned. And they saw God's power and glory. They were there when God parted the Jordan River, when they went into the land. They were part of God's miracle as he allowed them to conquer the land of Canaan. Things were going very well until Joshua and his generation died. And then the next generation, just three generations from Moses, they did not know the Lord or the things he had done. And so I want us to just consider this. Consider this pattern today. Consider this abstract from the book of Judges. Very relevant to our church plant. You could say in some ways that our church plant is no longer in church plant mode and by God's grace is doing better than it ever has. But that will not last unless you and I continue to carry the mantle to focus on the life and death, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will not happen unless we continue to make our faith our own. As we're going to see in this passage, no one is born a Christian. You don't inherit your born-again Christianity from your parents. Each generation has to choose what they believe and the same is true for us and so what are the dynamics that lead to this kind of unbelief and spiritual apathy I think it's happening all over the church today would you agree with that when you look out at the landscape church membership today is at the lowest point I think percentage-wise in a hundred years and it's and it's declining steadily and we've said this over and over again there's a group of of people that are rising in terms of the st statistics more than any other group what is that group called y'all know this the nuns people with no religious affiliation oftentimes the nuns were born and raised in the church how does this dynamic happen I think one thing we're gonna see is and this is this is like a little counterintuitive is a lack of adversity a lack of adversity a lack of trials in the Christian life is not something to be desired it's it's a very dangerous thing you know you would think well aren't we supposed to pray for a lack of adversity I mean in in one sense yes but in one sense no we're to pray for our daily bread but God uses adversity God puts tests in our lives to grow us 
and refine us and to help us make our faith our own. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He wrote, adversities and difficulties, what do they do? They teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and they let us see what we are made of. This generation of Israelites, what did they have to do to enjoy the promised land? The generation after Joshua and Caleb. What did they have to do to enjoy their inheritance? Really, they just, they just had it. They didn't participate in the conquest. They were born in the promised land. Isn't that ironic that the very first generation of people born in the promised land was the first generation to fall into apostasy. They didn't have to wonder where their manna was coming from. How was Israel described, the land of Canaan? What were the descriptors? What was it like? It was a land, what? Flowing with milk and honey. They took it for granted. A lack of adversity, a lack of difficulty, a lack of wrestling with your faith often leads to a spirit of, of presumption or indifference. Like in Psalm, day, Psalm 30, verse 6, King David wrote, When I felt secure, I said I will never be shaken. The New Living Translation translates it that David wrote, When I was prosperous, I said, quote, Nothing can stop me now. When things are going well, um, when we don't have concerns and worries, we often fall into indifference and independence and autonomy, and that is not a good place for us to be. Let me read to you more about the land of Canaan. Canaan was a land, quote, with large and flourishing cities. And this is the Lord through Moses telling the people of Israel, it's going to be a land with flourishing cities, cities that you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. If there's not adversity, if there's not difficulty, if your faith is not being challenged, if you're not having to wrestle with God and prayer, that is a difficult place to be. I'm not a big Simpsons fan, but there is kind of a funny line from The Simpsons when Homer asked his son, Bart, to pray at Thanksgiving. You've probably heard this. He was like, son, would you pray, return thanks at Thanksgiving? And Bart says, dear God, we paid, we paid for all of this ourselves, so thanks for nothing, okay? And that's kind of the spirit sometimes of our prayers is like, Lord, thank you for this, but I, I, I think I paid for this and I work for this. Um, the book of James, the brother of Jesus, tells his readers, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Because it produces patience and endurance and Christian maturity. One of my favorite fathers of the faith, John Newton, you know the great hymn he wrote? Amazing Grace, incredible minister. He wrote this. Trials are medicines. Difficulties 
are medicines. Our adversities are medicines which our gracious and wise physician prescribes because we need them. And he proportions the frequency and weight of our trials to what the case requires. The frequency of the medicine, the weight, the potency of the medicine, he apportions to exactly what you and I need. So this is where testing comes into play. Why didn't God just allow Joshua to drive out all the nations before he died? Why did God intentionally leave some of the Canaanites in Canaan? Look at verse 22 of our text. The Lord says, I will use the Canaanites as understood. I will use them. I will use the Canaanites to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors. Verse 23, the Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not, he intentionally did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. And so the, Lord's put, the Lord puts these things in our lives to grow us. I love this text from 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul writes these things. He's talking about the witness of the Old Testament, the people's um, entry into the promised land and beyond. Paul writes... These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. The book of Judges in the scheme of redemption is a cautionary tale. A cautionary tale. It was written as a reminder to show us what happens when we're not bowing to King Jesus. Do you remember the refrain? It's introduced in Judges 17, kind of the, the anthem of the book. You remember the Judges, it says there was what? No king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. That's what happens when we functionally operate with autonomy and independence, when things are going great, when we don't see our need for Christ and his church, it is not good for us spiritually. Let's look at this pattern. And see, this book, like we've said before, it is, it is pedagogical. In other words, it's preparatory. It teaches us about the nature of Christian discipleship. The fancy word is sanctification. Look at this pattern. Look at this pattern. Verses 14 and following. This is the entire book of Judges in just a few verses. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. The Lord, he, he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. In other words, he sold them into slavery to the nations that they did not drive out, to the nations that also surrounded them. He sold them into slavery, into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Verse 16, 
Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. It was actually a grace that the Lord sold his people into slavery, into the possession of the nations around them. Why did he do that? What was the purpose? To show them their need. To show them their spiritual poverty. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I look at trials, I look at hardships, I look at adversities, at adversity, at adversities, sometimes as if those are indicators that God doesn't exist. That if he did exist, I wouldn't have to experience these things. That if he loved me, he would never allow me to go through this or that when just the opposite is true. It is because he loves you that he tests you. There's a difference between temptation and testing. The Lord never tempts his people, but the Lord tests his people. And if he loves you, he's going to test you. If he loves you, he's going to put you and me in difficult situations. And he's going to put us in these situations so that we will see our need for him. He's going to put us in these situations to humble us and to show us that more than anything else, we need to be rescued. We need to be helped. And of course, we know who the true rescuer is. Look at verse 16 in our text. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. The text indicates that for a period of time, things would go okay. Then verse 19. But when the judge died, when people like Gideon, when he died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. They got even worse following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. What was true of them is true for us. This is preparatory. This is pedagogical. Okay, this is what happens in your life and mine. What does Paul say in Romans 7? The good I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, what happens? Those are the things I do. He says, I find this law at work within me that what I want to do good, evil is right there with me. The law of sin, waging war against my heart. What is the book of Judges about? The book of Judges is to reinforce the fact that we need a king. We need a deliverer more than anything else in this life. God has provided it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need him not only when we come to him for faith the very first time, we need him every day. Here's how you know if you're growing in your Christian faith. If you remember nothing else from today and nothing else from this text, remember this. How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you're growing in Christian discipleship? It's in the fact that you see your sin more and more. The more you grow in your sanctification and walk with the Lord, the more you grow, 
the more you should wonder whether or not you're really a Christian. Isn't that an irony of the Christian life? The more you grow, the more at times you should wonder, am I really a Christian because of the conviction the Holy Spirit is welling up in your heart. The more you grow, the more sinful you should understand yourself to be. The more you grow, the more humble you should become and the more in need of Jesus Christ you should see yourself to be. The whole Bible is just a book to convince us of our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. More and more and more and more. And we'll see that as we study the book of Judges together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are and for all that you have done. Holy Spirit of the living God, help us see ourselves in this text that we, we go through trials and adversities and difficulties and we cry out to you and you show us grace and mercy and then we quickly forget about you and we grow in independence and autonomy until the next crisis comes and we reach out to you and pray for rescue and on and on it goes. Holy Spirit of the living God, help us to understand these difficulties that we face, face through a different lens. Help us to understand that you use these things to test us and grow us and refine us. And if they weren't there, we would wander and stray. Father, thank you for our trials. Thank you for the ways that you test us. Thank you for, for all the different things you use to keep us clinging to Jesus. In his matchless name we pray, amen and amen.